Welcome to The Pethwell Project, a podcast that explores the library of scripture, person of Jesus, and how they apply to our lives. In this episode, we speak with my good friend, Stephen. Stephen has a BA in religion and philosophy and an MA in Arabic philology from the American University of Cairo. He has been living in the Middle East for a number of years and, in my opinion, is an expert on Islam. He's fluent in a number of languages, including Biblical Hebrew, Classical Arabic, Modern modern Standard Arabic, Aramaic, Sanskrit, and more. In my opinion, he is one of the best resources on evangelism and interfaith dialogue. And in this episode, we talk about exactly that. What does it look like to have a biblical conversation with our friends from other religions? This episode is deep and has some profound insights, so I hope you enjoy the show. everyone. Welcome to the Pethwell Project. I'm here again with Stephen, and today we are going to be talking about interfaith dialogue. What is it? Should Christians participate in it? And is it helpful? Stephen, welcome. What do you hey, think? What do I think? <laughs> uh, I think it's all wrong, and everyone who thinks it's right is wrong. Fantastic. Um, yeah, lay down the thesis it. from the beginning. Right. Um, yeah, well, so when you talk about interfaith dialogue, um, lots of people throw around the word Christ honoring interfaith dialogue or Christ honoring um, ecumenical conversations. Uh, but throwing Christ honoring in front of a word doesn't actually make it Christ honoring, mm-hmm. even if it's really nice what you're doing, or if you think it's really nice. Um, there's more to Christ than just whatever is quote unquote good. There's actual specific teachings here, and there are things that he's taught against mm-hmm. as well. And so when yeah. you talk about a Christ-honoring conversation, I think it has to be a conversation spurred on by specific biblical goals, goals that the Bible says are important things for men of God and for Christians to seek after and to try to achieve. Yeah. So I think when you when you ask what is a Christ-honoring conversation, uh, Faith interfaith conversation. The first question is actually why is a Christ honoring uh, Christ honoring interfaith conversation? Because mm-hmm. once you answer why you want to have an interfaith dialogue, then you can begin to look at what the Bible tells you to do in that situation, or in other words, how the Bible models that interfaith dialogue. So first, you got to assess why you want to have this dialogue, and then you can start looking at the Bible and saying, all right. Um, and the reason I say that is because when we look at the Bible and we will, there are a lot, there are different interfaith dialogues for different reasons and they go in different directions for that reason. Yeah. So, so you do have to establish why you want to have this dialogue first and then start to flesh out the shape of it, how it, how it looks. Um, yeah, it's so true. And even from like, I mean, personal experience, I think a, a reason why we wanted to have this conversation is that we all in one context or another participate in interfaith dialogues. Mm -hmm. We have Mm -hmm. colleagues, family members that have different convictions and worldviews. And sometimes uh, those convictions either implicitly or explicitly come to the fore and there's that tension. So if we could remove the veil and talk about these worldviews, perhaps we can have a better understanding and even um, grow closer to the truth. Uh, either ourself, if we're an heir, or the person we're discussing, if they're an heir, uh, moving closer to the truth. But then, as Pilate yeah. famously said, what is truth? What is truth? Yeah. 
So I think that that's a, a big part of the dialogue is I think we're trying to get towards what is true. Going at it then, if we look at the scriptures, we see some examples of interfaith dialogue. And then we see some biblical principles that might be a good starting point for interfaith dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, starting at the beginning, I think. I think the most clear, the first clear example of interfaith dialogue might be uh, the discussion on Mount, the event on Mount Carmel. Mm -hmm. with Which, uh, I, Elijah. Yeah. I thought that that was an interesting uh, example that you brought up when we were talking about this before, because um, I never thought of the events on Mar Mount Carmel as being an interfaith dialogue. Um, it's interesting because for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, there's the prophets of Baal and then there's Elijah and they both build an altar and say, whoever will call down fire is the true God. Yep. Um, so how would you see this discussion in the context of yeah. interfaith dialogue? So oh, before I jump in, I will say there is one earlier example that's very much in the same vein in the Bible, but I didn't go into it. So I didn't think it was fleshed out enough. And that's between Moses and the uh, priests of Pharaoh. Ooh. Uh, but they, they essentially do the same thing. Um, so the reason I think that it's an interfaith dialogue is because there are two people with two religious worldviews. Only one can be correct. And they come together to wrestle us and find the truth as to which one is correct. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the interfaith dialogue in the Bible that we get, like the trial of the gods in Isaiah and like Jeremiah's mocking of the pagan gods come from a one-sided perspective. They're not so much dialogues as they are condemnation of people who have false religious worldviews. There are mm. only a few times in the Bible where we get an actual two-sided representation where um, the representatives of alternate religious views get to present their case in one way or another. Yeah. Now, in their context, debate looked a bit different. Um, there wasn't a whole lot to debate about between the priests of Baal and the priests of Elijah in terms of like textual evidence or historical evidence or stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. But that didn't mean that they weren't debating the truth of the two claims. And the reason why is Baal was the god of the rain and the storm. So believing in Baal, what it meant, there wasn't a whole lot of afterlife conversation either or anything like that. Um, and Baal was a dying and rising God. He'd die in the winter and rise again in the summer and the spring. Um, the only really way to refute that claim was to test it straightforwardly. That was how you had that conversation. So um, when God causes rain to cease over the land of Israel, in my estimation, in my opinion, that's God straightforwardly challenging the false religion of Baal mm. on its most essential truth claim. The most essential truth claim of the religion of Baal is that Baal causes it to rain. The most essential truth claim in the Ashtoreth poll is that Ashtoreth causes uh, the harvest to come. That's why she's a, a fertility goddess. That's why there's temple prostitutions. Those are the two central truth claims of the religion of Baal and Ashtoreth, respectively, is it makes it rain. It makes it the the crops grow those are the truth claims um, those is, are the claims yep because we have the 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 bible talks a lot about asherah poles right and um correct me if i'm wrong but did those originate in egypt um no i'm pretty sure that those are canaanite religions okay because i'm just I, 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 i'm just thinking if 
so for the coming back to Mount Carmel, because Elijah yeah. prayed that it would not rain and it didn't rain for three years. Yeah. So that's interesting that that's a direct challenge to the God of Baal. And I'm wondering yeah. then with the Joseph narrative uh, in Egypt with the famine, if that would have been a yes. challenge to Absolutely. Asherah. Not to Ashtoreth, but to the Egyptian gods who also promised it to. Mm. Um, but that wasn't so much about deciding which religion is true. The reason I don't include it is because there isn't the same conversation as to whether or not Pharaoh should convert and become a Yahweh server. It's more about God vindicating Joseph mm. than it is about God vindicating the religion of Yahweh, which is really what um, Elijah is about, as made evidence in the very famous quote. And I felt an enormous amount of trepidation, vindication, and terror when I read it again this week in Hebrew. Israel, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord mm. is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. Wow. Um, think about that with a lot of the political middle way Christianity that exists in the world. Just ponder it. Just ponder it. Um, That's convicting, man. Wow. Right? And the word is actual opinions, which is interesting, because that's a word that we use a lot today in our dialogue is opinions. So mm. I think that this, as an example of an interfaith dialogue, is closer to the example of what we would call a debate. That's because the essential truth claims of both religion are on the table. Um, we have a covenant with Yahweh as Israel, and that covenant gives us blessing, chief among them reign. Uh, well, not chief among them, but among them reign. Chief among them would be possession of the land. And then Baal has this essential truth claim, which is you worship me and rain is going to come. And so there's a contest between the essential truth claims of the two religions. Two religions enter and only one religion comes out. There's, there's a, a clear winner and a clear loser. And also, like with a lot of debates, the debate is not so much between the debaters. It's more for the people who are listening. Mm. So if you're engaged in a debate with somebody, like a public debate, which happens between Christians and Muslims, not as much between Christians and Jews, but it does happen. But happens a lot between Christians and Muslims and Christians and atheists. The goal isn't always to convince the atheists to cross from you. The goal is sometimes to convince the people looking, um, which was the case. Um, but mm -hmm. th this is a very clear biblical precedent for being very straightforward and honest and blunt about the truth claims of the Bible and to go straightforward after the truth claims of a false religion. That's not the only biblical model. Uh, it might be. Um, but that is certainly, there's biblical precedent for that. So if someone comes at you and says it's not loving, to have a debate about religion and to criticize someone else's belief. I don't know that they, they, they should take it up with Elijah. Yeah. Um, and also if you have a perspective also, of eternity, if we really believe this, I think the yeah. most um, loving thing that the church can do is speak about what they've seen and heard. They've seen and heard. Yeah. Because if, if we remain silent. Rain, yeah. Yeah. If people were dying of thirst. And so Elijah could have stayed silent and been loving towards the priests of Baal and more people would have died. Yeah, yeah. Well, Which I think is, is fascinating in the Mount Carmel narrative is that after fire comes down, Elijah prays and then it rains. Yes. And there's another interesting piece. We'll get to that at this time. Um, Elijah is very snarky with King Ahab. Yeah. Um, yeah be maybe, careful maybe, with that. Maybe your God is on the toilet. That's what the priests of Baal of King Ahab, Ahab says, is this the troublemaker of Israel? And Elijah responds in a very unloving way. You're the troublemaker of Israel and the, your fathers who brought in these, fault, these pagan gods are actually the troublemakers of Israel. 
He spars a little bit snarky with Ahab. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting facets of this is that Ahab is redeemed in the story, at least in the beginning. The priests of the Baal, the priests, the, 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 the prophets of Baal are brought down to the river and slaughtered, but Ahab isn't. Mm. Ahab is told to go, it's, he prays for it to rain and tells Ahab to go back to, to, to Judah. So, so Ahab has redemption in this story, um, which yeah. is interesting. The debate is partially for Ahab so that he can come to know the truth. Um, but the prophets of Baal, the story is kind of wrote for them. Clear dichotomy between true and false, between truth and falsehood. We have Elijah's command to Israel to not be on the fence about this. Mm. And we have a clear decision in the end on the part of Israel to the truth and a rejection of the falsehood in the strongest possible ways. Um, that's like a religious debate, I would say. So mm. you can have those discussions and you have those debates. You don't have to presuppose in those debates that you're going to convince the person you're debating with, but it is presupposed a little bit in those debates that someone's going to pay attention and someone's going to come to the truth so that there are a lot of online arguments filled with profanity. And if you're involved in one of those multiple long conversations where you're messaging someone and they're messaging you and it's a private chat and you're angry at them, they're angry at you, ask yourself, is this still Christ honoring or did that stop being the case a long time ago? Yeah. And if, if, if the person you're arguing with, and if you're 15 message replies into this thread with this guy and he's cursing out you and you're cursing out him if you're now looking at the situation and thinking this guy's not converting to christianity at all mm -hmm. and no one else is paying attention to this conversation i submit that maybe this conversation did stop becoming christ honoring yeah maybe this isn't the so there has to there has to be a purpose to the religious dialogue there has to be someone in the audience who's going to make some kind of change based on what they're hearing yeah in order for this dialogue to be Christ honoring. It can't just be two people who think they're smart and brilliant having at each other to prove it or have too big of egos and are too insulted by what the other person said and their egos are too hurt by what the other person said to let it go. So they're just butting heads. Hmm. Um, yeah, you gotta humble yourself. Gotta humble yourself and you've gotta think about who is the audience for this conversation. It doesn't have to be the person you're talking to, but it has to be somebody. Hmm. There has to be an audience that you think is going to hear this and receive it and be changed by it some way yeah so I mean, that's, that's yeah. the debate um that's the debate model yes and then so but that, that that final rule goes to all three i think ultimately yeah but there has to be an audience who's going to be impacted by this conversation do you think so because what if you are having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with uh someone from the other faith like um uh, say we're, we're going for coffee with someone who uh is a muslim and we're just talking about, you know, what we agree and disagree on. Uh, it's just you at the coffee shop. I still think that that conversation can be profitable. Oh, yeah. But I think that that Muslim is still hearing what I have to say in a way. Yeah. That's why I think it's valuable. Even if I don't think that they're going to convert their religion, per se. Um, what I meant was I said make some kind of change. The reason I didn't say change their religion is because we are going to get to talking about other types of conversations like political conversations. Mm -hmm. But there has to be some impacted audience. Yeah, it can't fair. just be. It can't just be a yelling match. It can't just be um, a weightlifting contest. It's so true, so, man, and that's the temptation. 
that you is gotta, the temptation. You gotta stay stay away from that. From that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, moving on then, um, I guess we can leave. Uh, unless there's something else you want to talk about with. No. Um, I, no, I was thinking that's a good time if you want to move to the other hill. The other hill, yeah. So the other hill is Mars Hill. Um, and Mars Hill is a much better example for us in a lot of ways. One, because it's the New Testament, which is always important. Not that the Old Testament is unimportant, but I think that there's a real spiritualization of some of the things in the Old Testament. Mm. So, for example, if a false prophet is in your church, don't take him to a river and slaughter him. <laughs> if you're tempted to, then seek help and don't do it. Yeah. Um, first, uh, anyhow... Um, but there is a spiritual equivalent in the New Testament, and that's excommunication. That's spiritual mm. death. So how do you this this might be a bit of a rabbit hole, but I'm just I'm just wondering your perspective on how we see the law changing from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Because I, I, I this concerns me when I hear some Christians say, Oh, but that's the God of the Old Testament. And that's God doesn't change. God, the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. Because if he changed, did he change for the better or for the worse? God doesn't change. So um, we need to remember that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the New Testament. So when we see that law changing, how do you see that law changing? Why don't we take a prophet down to the river and stone a false prophet? We do in a way, I'm afraid to say. So, um, yes, we don't want to become like the Islamic position a good, the majority of the time that says that the 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 bible and the 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 new testament the old testament are corrupted and unusable if that was what the new testament authors intended they wouldn't have quoted it so much yeah but there is a spiritual version of that that we find in the bible where excommunication is prescribed for those among us committing adultery Mm. and that's spiritual death being because the wages of sin is death so when you're cut off from the church when you're cut off from the fellowship of the believers that's spiritual death. That's real death, because mm. um, death entered Adam, entered humanity through Adam, and life enters through Christ. So when you're excommunicated from the body of believers, that is being put to death in a real mm. way. Wow. And so excommunication is certainly the punishment in the New Testament for egregious matters of sin. Absolutely. Not all things are punished that way. Um, in Thessalonians, if someone's being lazy and not contributing, they are to be cut off. But the words in Thessalonians, which are very nice and very completing on this point, are, but as one who is a brother so that he feels ashamed. Mm. So he's not cut off in the sense of being excommunicated. It's you're no longer a brother. You're, you're under the judgment of God. You're going to hell. But as a brother, so that you're embarrassed by your behavior. You're not allowed to come back to church for a while because what you've done is very wrong. And mm. you're our brother in Christ. But you're still our brother in Christ. Um, and that's the punishment for someone who's not contributing, who's being lazy in the church at that time and not helping out financially with, with the stuff that's going on. Um, so if you have a person in your church who's not uh, giving to the church, you don't have to excommunicate them over that. Um, but this would be an option. This Thessalonians option would be an option for someone who's participating in the church, participating, listening to the pastor's sermons, participating in the worship, but not contributing to the obvious financial costs that it is. To have a pastor speak and it does cost money to have a full-time pastor and it does cost money to have a worship team and a worship pastor and so if you benefit from that spiritually and you don't put into that then there is a punishment in Thessalonians but it's not being put to death like the punishment for adultery is Mm. unrepentant idolatry I should say obviously 
the Christians still sin and can repent of their sins and still be considered brothers and sisters should clarify. Unrepentant idolaters, yes. Spiritual death is the punishment for that, just like physical death was the punishment for idolatry in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a good clarification. Thank you for that. Um, so then moving on to the Acts 17 yes. Mars Hill, how is this different right. from Mount Carmel? Yeah, well, it's different uh, first off because it's evangel evangelistic in the sense that Paul is trying to convert the people he's directly talking to, not the people who are listening. Um, so there is a different tone that comes in when you're trying to reach the heart of the person you're talking to and you're trying to convince them. Um, is different than when you're trying to convince somebody else. So if I'm just arguing with a Muslim and there's a few agnostics listening, then shredding Islam to build up Christianity might be wise. But if I'm just I'm talking to a Muslim, then I might want to have a different tone, and I want to mm -hmm. make some more connections to what they already believe, so as to convince them uh, to come to know the truth, which is what we get in Mars Hill with the statue to the unknown God. Now, so I'm picking up, this is Acts 17, verses 16 from the NASB. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked with, within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some from the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were uh, conversing with him. Some were saying... What would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seemed to be uh, a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the uh, Arioc Areopolis. Thank you. Saying, may we know what this new teacher is. What are you proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Arabs and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are being uh, very religious in all aspects. So while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though we needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as even some of your own poets have said, uh, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed from the heart of and uh, thought of men. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed 
among whom also were Dionysius and Erichropites, and a woman named Dermiers and others with them. All right, that's good. Um, so yeah, there's a couple of things we note that are different than Mount Carmel, but some very important things that are the same. What I think is importantly so different is that because he's trying to convince these men, um, he takes a more, he doesn't mock them the same way. There's no sarcasm here. Mm. Um, not maybe your God is sleeping. Maybe he's attending to some business. The, Sep the Septuagint and the MT both say um, he's seeing to some business. The Targum says he's in the restroom. He's relieving himself. I'm mm. not sure where that comes from originally, but I got that in Sunday school. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm actually um, but it's wondering, because yeah. when, when you say MT, just to clarify, Masoretic text, Masoretic text um, yeah. and what's the Hebrew word? Because I, I actually, I'm going to look at the ESV, because I think it says relieving himself, and they got that from the Targum. Yeah, well, maybe I, when I read it in the MT the first time, that's not what I got. Because um, I'm now, I'm just, I'm curious, because I need to go back and look at the text, because I think that even my ESV says on the toilet. Now it's just a curious rabbit hole. Just for those of you who don't know, the Targum is an Aramaic translation of the Old Testament with some some commentary. So yeah, he's busy. He's on a journey. No, no. Yeah. So in the in the MT it says Kishiyik. Um, which is translated as he is busy. That appears to be the only occurrence according to Strong's. Okay, yeah. In I'm just looking at the ESV. Uh, either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey. So relieving... uh, You know what it probably is? This is a hopox. Um, so it's a, it's a word that only appears in this context and nowhere else. Mm, and so, yeah, yeah. That's why... It, and so it's not in any other um, place. And the Targums have it that he's in the bathroom. The Septuagint goes a different direction. Um, but that's one idea as to what it might mean and to why it's a hot box. Mm. Anywho, point is, we don't get that same exact tone between Paul and the men of Athens mm. at this point. Um, because he's trying to convince them. Now, if you have a friend who's a good friend of yours, and when you argue, you make fun of each other a little bit and you laugh together, I have some friends like that. It's fine, right? That's not a sin to do that. But you know your relationship with people. You understand the dynamics, and you know what you can get away with and what you can't get away with. Ultimately, you take the tone that you think is going to have the most impact on them on a heart level in terms of that they might come to know what you're saying is true. Mm -hmm. and in so, love let everything you love. say be, do, be done in love, in love. which which sometimes know, you know is stern looks like between you and your friends right you know what yeah when i have some friends where for arguing in love i can say things like how are you this stupid was it the milk was it radiation when you were a kid <laughs> like that's 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 late that's love between <laughs> us like we laugh together about that kind of and he'll respond in kind you can take it as well as he gives it but um, you can't do that with everyone and you really shouldn't do that with a stranger yeah, and so and that those kind of Facebook arguments that you see, even if the other person starts it and the other person will start it, that's not that's not the tone here that Paul takes in an evangelical conversation. 
trying to evangelize the people he's speaking with. Mm -hmm. Second thing is he does a lot of explanation and connection making, which Elijah didn't need to do mm -hmm. because the Israelites already knew who Yahweh was. They knew the truth they'd rejected. And he, what his job was, was just to show what's, which of the two claims is true. They both knew pretty well what each claim was. Um, mm -hmm. So we do, he see a lot of precedent here for uh, when you're in a situation where you have to explain the gospel and you are for drawing connections and making connections with, with what the person already believes and already knows. We see citations from Greek poetry and we, of course, hear a reference to an author, to an unknown God. And we see an acknowledgement that the men of Athens had been worshiping the true God before. So there is precedence for contextualization. That might be a buzzword yeah. in your approach, in your presentation of the gospel. Absolutely. Um, do you want to explain what that is? Yeah, well, I think even it should, it's, I just find it interesting is that when he's, when he's talking to the, the Greeks in Athens, he uses what they're familiar with. But when he's yes. talking in a synagogue to a Jewish audience, he's quoting the law and the prophets. And right. I think that that's helpful when we are um, witnessing or having these discussions with people who don't believe. We can use mm -hmm. cultural markers that show this. Yeah. Um, and it may sure. not always be beneficial to just quote the Bible if that's not someone, something that someone already reveres as being truth honoring. So I think that sometimes we're tempted yeah. to just well the bible says well the bible says well, the bible says yeah, yeah. um yeah the bible does say that and those things may be true but let's humble ourselves and start on let's start where someone is yeah. and start pointing them to truth because um they're not seeing that bible as being authoritative and and that's part of the sanctification process that's part of the same. yeah yeah and even elijah doesn't really acknowledge the bible as being authoritative he does go on to prove it he doesn't say look Torah says that Yahweh is real, so why aren't you following Yahweh? He says, look, you need one more demonstration, here it comes. I thought taking you out of Egypt was enough, but it's not. So here's the fire. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're talking to someone who has no context, zero context, it's okay to give them that context, which is what contextualization is, is mm -hmm. giving the gospel a context based on the cultural context that you're in. If you're in a context where people understand the world in a certain way, use certain terms, have yeah. certain understandings, have certain texts that describe the world. You give the gospel a context rooted already present in the context that you're in. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to. And so put, this, I can give an example of that if you'd like. I was, I was just going to say, I said, sorry to put you on the spot, but I know that you are, you're, I don't want to use the word expert because I know you don't like that, but you are, you are gifted in the area of contextualizing the gospel in Islamic settings. What would you, what would be an example you use? Um, I use a bunch of examples. The one that I like to use, um, that I like to spin on it. I actually came across this example first, listening to a really antagonistic woman speaking about an Islamic scholar who described Christians and Jews as filthy. And the verse she's referring to in the Quran is Surah 925 in some uh, recitations. There's a couple of violations violations to the Quran. So if you if it's not 925 in your Quran, don't panic. Um, but in some it's 925 where the Quran says um, unbelievers are filthy so they can't approach the, the prophet's holy mosque. Mm -hmm. Unbelievers are filthy so they shouldn't approach the prophet's holy mosque. And the application of that in some countries is it, 
people who are not Muslim can't go into mosques. I had to sneak into a mosque in Morocco because in Morocco, non-Muslims aren't allowed to enter mosques. Um, but I spoke mm -hmm. classical Arabic, so they just assumed that I was a Muslim and they let me in. Um, but the, the universal and widely agreed upon application is that Muslims can't go to Mecca, to the Kaaba. Mm -hmm. uh, and the result, Muslim, non-Muslims aren't even allowed to enter the city. Um, so I use that as a context for explaining why vicarious redemption is essential because people who are filthy, who sin, can't approach the presence of God, can't even come into the presence of God, even to ask for forgiveness is what the book of Job says. We're mm -hmm. so filthy before God, we couldn't come into his presence to ask forgiveness, even if we wanted to get clean. Wow. So wow. I bring that up that just... verse. Yeah. That just makes me think of Philippians 2, 6 through 11, how beautiful it is that God came to us then. Came to us and not to him. And so that's, that's what I say. I'm like, how can I even approach if I can't go into the mosque? For, and, and how can I approach? And that's where I bring in the, the atonement piece. Um, and then other people like to bring up um, the hadith of the man who killed 99 men. Um, he kills 99 men. I'm going to really summarize it. And he gets to heaven because it's what God willed. And because God, he's supposed to go to a city to get forgiveness. And he dies before he gets in the city. And in some narrations, God literally brings the city close to him and moves the earth. Mm. Um, so people like to use that to sort of contrast um, the Christian view of redemption with the Muslim one and say, if God's law is violated, um, could God still be a just God if he did that? That's in a more argumentative tone but we'll talk about that in a second but for me i like to put the gospel in context with that verse in 925 about the kuffar being uh the word is rejaisun. um mm. but i put it in that context because i want them to understand the the weight and the power of sin mm. um and so I, I i put that i put that context out there and I say well, clearly it's not physical filth. Mm. That, that's the reason Kufar can't go into a mosque. So what is it that makes them so corrupted and so unable to enter a mosque? Especially since if they convert to Islam, Bob's your uncle, and they can again. What, what's mm. the difference between being able to go into the presence of God and not? And then when they say sin, that's where I open the conversation and I say, and how does one get clean from sin? How does one um, become pure? And so that's, mm. that's one of the things I use uh, to talk about it. Um, lots of people like to go to the Jesus passages in the Quran. And I like that too, but those were the ones where I think the Islamic scholarship has provided the most uh, comprehensive and convincing frameworks of explanations. They've heard that one before. Mm. Yeah. And so if you read Islamic scholarship, there's a lot of answers to the questions of Jesus in the Quran. There's a lot of answers. A lot of answers to the verse in Quran that make it seem like uh, Jesus actually did die. They have answers for that. Um, there's a, answers for how Jesus was supported by the Holy Spirit in the Quran. There's an answer for that too. And so that one, you can bring it up, but you got to be prepared to, to to spar for a long time, to talk for a long time about that, because they're going to have an answer if if you're hanging with really intelligent people. But for me, that one's one of the ones that most of them I found, most people I found, haven't actually thought about when they're reading. As to, yeah. as to why that would be the way that it is that's um, really good i also like how you uh, didn't start with being antagonistic and i think that this is something right. that lots of people in the west get wrong when they're having a conversation 
with, uh, with Muslims is that they immediately go to really, really um, right. controversial things like, well, Muhammad was a pedophile, which is like, yeah, is so like, yeah, you're really going to win friends and influence people by starting that there. Was- and like, that's just, well, that's not helping me, anything. Me, Please don't do that. Let's go back to Acts 17 for a second, because I think actually there, there's more into it than just the issue of contextualization. There is a president in Acts 17 for disagreeing and presenting the contrary truth. Paul does that by my count three times. By my count three times, he presents the contrary truth to the men of Athens. Mm-hmm. He presents, he says that God is not the sort that dwells in temples, right after saying, talking about the altar to the unknown God. He's like, well, you're worshiping this God, but he's not the type of God who lives in temples. Right after t- telling them about the temple, he just walked by. Mm. Um, so that's the first contrary truth. They believe God's dwell in temples. They had their, um, they call it the Parthenon. There in Athens, it's not there now. Oh no, it's still there, I've seen it. And it had statues for all the gods. Um, and you could go there and meet the gods there. Then the second time he says, he's not the sort that's made of, bra- of, of gold and brass and stone. And they had statues made of all those materials. And that was God. That's how Zeus was. That's how Hermes was. That's how. Mm. And then finally, um, not everyone catches it because not everyone's familiar on this subject. But at the very end, when he talks about being resurrected on the last day, a lot of the men of Athens grumble Mm. and cut him off. The reason for that is that uh, the Greeks at that time were dualists. And the word that Paul uses uh, for resurrection is anastasis. Uh, which means a resurrected body, not a spiritual body. Mm. And the Greeks at that time believed that um, kind of, have you ever heard of Cartesian dualism? Yeah. So it's kind of like a, like Neoplatonic. Casper theology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Neoplatonic Casper theology that you have this ghost that, that, that seeps into your body and controls your body. And then when you die, that ghost leaves and your body shuts off like a, like a robot. Yeah, And so when Paul uses the word anastasis and talks about that resurrection, that's straightforwardly contradicting their view of resurrection, because in their uh, system of things, and we see this resurge in Gnostic theology and kind of creep into Christianity with Gnostic theology, um, is that for them, the physical is very perverse and disgusting and gross, and the spiritual Mm -hmm. is very high and holy and respected. And so it's a lesser God that's made of meat and physical things. And so when he talks about the physical resurrection being a physical resurrection, he's contradicting their beliefs that the resurrection had to be a spiritual resurrection and their framework that um, the spiritual is essentially and always better than the physical. Mm. And he's contradicting that belief there. That's, that's three contrary truths present. Yeah. But he's yeah. still not quite like Elijah. He's still not making fun of them. Um. um. What's that? It does go after the essential good thing. Uh, sorry, I'm just that reminded me of something. Uh, I'm just googling it. Uh, when I think it's in Corinthians, he quotes a Greek poet to them, something about yeah. food for the stomach. Yes, yes. Uh, I can't remember the exact verse, but um, yeah, when he says that to them, he's he's uh it's convicting because they're living in a way that has um, polygamous relationships, gluttony, drunkenness, and those are all sins for the body. And when he's saying that it's not spiritual and physical, that, that we're one, 
Um, yes. And it's going to be resurrected together. That's a direct condemnation of their culture and lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, those people were Christians, so he was also kind of reminding them not to keep going back to where you were before and letting your old beliefs seep into your new. Because that's a battle all the way through for both Jews and Gentiles, right? Peter always struggles with letting the Gentiles in. He just, it never goes away for him. So letting their old beliefs and letting their old religion and turning away from their old life was a process for everyone in the New Testament. Everyone was struggling and shifting back and forth from time to time and having trouble uh, seeing their new life in Christ. That That is a problem that we see. Yeah, um, absolutely. You, yeah, here's the verse. I just to- found it. It's 1 Corinthians 6.13. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, right. however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Exactly. So the Greek dualism there was extremely convenient for a culture that loved sexuality. Yeah. Just like Darwinism is an extremely convenient uh, idea for our present culture that's in, in love with sexuality. They're both good excuses to be able to do what you want with your body. Mm-hmm. And the Christian proclamation still sees your body as being a temple of the Holy Spirit. He still sees it as being something that needs to be honored and treated with, res- treated with respect and used in a holy and God-honoring way. And the Gentiles then and the Gentiles now have trouble with that, but they have different excuses mm-hmm. within a philosophical worldview. Paul does still go after those essential truth claims, but he does so... First off, contextualizing that argument with stuff that they already know, using the the poetry that we're all God's children. So there is a contextualized presentation of that contrary truth. So in my example, I do explain the atonement, right? Mm -hmm. When I talk about the kafad being filthy, I do explain the need for vicarious redemption, which is not something that's found in Islam at all. Mm -hmm. So... If you're going to have an evangelical conversation where you present the gospel, you are going to have to evangelize and present the gospel, is what, is what I'm saying, is the takeaway from here. At some point, you're going to have to tell them what the truth is, or else you're wasting your time. Yeah. And this, this kind of happens from time to time in the Middle East when you get into a situation where some people just want to say something nice when they're meeting a new person, especially from a new country. And so they'll say uh, everyone worships God and Christian Muslims and Jews all believe in God, uh, mm. stuff like that. So, and those aren't really the Christ honoring conversations we hear in the Bible. It's not a mm. sin to be a part of one, but that's not the kind of dialogue I think you should seek to have yeah. with people. I think you should seek a dialogue where you do proclaim the truth and the essential truth claims of, of Christianity uh, are presented and built up. Amen. That includes the re- that includes the resurrection. That includes that God is not made of brass or stone. That includes that God is not contained in any temple. And mm-hmm. so, there's a balance between contextualization and presenting the truth. Um, but presenting the truth is important. Going after the essential truth claims. When it goes to the example of things like um, the prophet being a pedophile because of one of his wives, that conversation you need to contemplate is that an essential truth claim of islam that has the sort of spiritual consequences you want it to have if it's salient Mm. now if you're in a public debate with a muslim and you're in the elijah situation where you're not preaching to the person you're talking to you're preaching to the people listening maybe that can be a thing to bring up as part of a wider case 
against the Prophet Muhammad? Perhaps. But if you're talking to a Muslim you've met, then you want to say the words that are going to get that person to the truth of who Jesus is the fastest in the right way. Mm -hmm. And so Paul could have brought up all of the awkward, goofy, and ridiculous things that Greek mythology contains. What about Zeus having sex in, the, in a cow with a cow, with a cow <laughs> costume? Remember that? <laughs> Where you dressed up as a cow to have sex with someone that, and all the women that Zeus has, the immortal women that Zeus has. Remember, remember that fiasco? Oh, I, vaguely. Um, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not as well read in my. I'm not super well read either, but there's a cow yeah. story involving Zeus. That's what I'll say. I'm not going to get into detail in case I make a mistake, but there's he has sex in a cow costume, like he tricks somebody with his cow costume. I do, I do remember that one though. The god that loves humankind gets gets ripped out of his mother's womb and stoned to Zeus's hip, and he grows into a man on Zeus's hip, hanging off of Zeus's hip. Um, so if all Paul wanted to do was make the pagan Athenians not pagan anymore. He could have gone to that story and said, guys, that's stupid. That's just stupid, guys. But that wasn't what Paul wanted to do. And always remember this when you're dialoguing with Muslims or with anybody. Your goal is not to turn a Muslim into an atheist. Your goal is not to make them not be a Muslim anymore. Because mm -hmm. a Muslim is perishing in his sin and an atheist is perishing in his sin. Your goal is to bring them the truth of who Jesus is. So bringing up Aisha bringing up military campaigns that Muhammad were on. If all the goal of that is to do is to convince them that Muhammad isn't a good person, I don't think that's the biblical model for interfaith conversation. Mm -hmm. I don't think the biblical model is to get the Athenians to stop believing in Zeus because he slept with so many mortal women all the time. Even though Paul could have done that if he'd wanted to. He seems to have, he seems to have been educated enough. He could have gone after the Jews probably too about some things that would have made them less Jewish. He probably could have criticized the rabbis for any number of reasons and convinced them not to be rabbis anymore. Mm. But that's not the, the point isn't to convince people to leave the religion that they have right now. The point is to get them to come to know who truth, the truth of who Jesus is and to be saved. Yeah, absolutely. To convert. So good, so good. So maybe we can segue to uh, the third one, ecum ec ecumenical conversations, ecumenical um, conversations. In, in First Peter. Yeah, there's no ecumenical conversations in First Peter. Let's say that. This is where <laughs> things get a little far afield. Yeah. And when things get far afield, you have to be really careful and watch your step. Yeah, and maybe we should define ecumenicalism first. Do we want to talk about it in regards to um, global religions, uh, Christian religions? Um, yeah. Abrahamic faiths, how are we going to define ecumenicalism? Well, yeah, so getting back to our initial question, which was why are you having interfaith dialogue and ecumenical conversation from the outset is a sort of conversation that seeks unity. That's really what it ultimately means, is it seeks unity, whether it's inside your religion, outside, it seeks unity. The first ecumenical councils were between, were inside the religion between bishops and churches. The most notable first one is Nicaea, but there were later on a bunch of ecumenical councils where the church leaders got together to discuss uh, issues that were dividing the church so that they could bring about unity in the church. Um, so if you're talking about an internal ecumenical conversation, 
that that's not an interfaith dialogue that's an intrafaith dialogue and that happens all the time in the new testament the council of jerusalem and acts would be the best example yeah. where the gospel is going to the gentiles but not everyone's sure so they get together they discuss and peter gives a ruling or james gives a ruling sorry yeah um that's act that, 15 if you want to reference yeah and so that's normal don't worry about that but that is a theological conversation and so that's ecumenical but not of the sort that I think we're going to talk about in a minute between faiths, because that is where you're looking for a point of agreement. Mm-hmm. To decide, say, this is what we agree on for yeah. doctrinal reasons. The yeah. unity you want is unity of doctrine, and you want to come to a point of agreement about it. Yeah, and I think that That's it's right. important as Christians when we're, um, I mean, full disclosure, Stephen and I are from Protestant tradition, uh, but if you're having a, a discussion with someone who's Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, um, any of these other uh, denominations i think it's helpful to major on the major points and minor on the minor points like if we're going to be talking about the deity of christ the resurrection the second coming those are things that are non-negotiable but if we're going to be talking about daniel's seven weeks or if or daniel's weeks or um other other things conversations to have like eschatology but they're not i wouldn't put intrafaith dialogue on them because yeah. they're not enough to earn that sort of a thing. Like there are lots of debates about eschatology on the internet. Just Google one right now. But they're never described as ecumenical. And the reason for that is that everyone's united from the start. We all believe in Jesus. We all believe in salvation by faith through grace alone. We all believe the essentials of the Christian faith. The Bible is an inerrant, inspired word of God. We're just hashing out some details right now that to our Christian life are kind of irrelevant because whether Jesus comes now or 50 years from now, everyone in this conversation believes that everyone else in the conversation is going to be caught up with him. Yeah. So the difference between those conversations and the ecumenical conversations I'll reiterate is we're united when we started. Mm. We already were united. Ecumenical conversation is seeking unity. There have been ecumenical conversations between Catholics and Protestants that start with the assumption that we're not united. And that's because Catholics and Protestants view salvation in such a different lens. One being by uh, grace through faith and one being by faith and works. And mm. so, so that huge difference has been a reason that there have been ecumenical conversations where both parties agree from the outset. We're not united just yet until yeah. we decide how exactly when someone asks, what must I do to be saved until we give the same answer, we're not united. Mm. And so that's why Catholics and Protestants often have ecumenical conversations. Um, and that's probably a good guidepost for unity in general is when someone asks, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is the same on both parts. That's a good indicator as to how united you are. Yeah. Um, and so that's why those conversations happen. They've ended with creative things like the Catholic Church canonizing Martin Luther and, and calling him St. Luther and stuff like that. But let's mm-hmm. move to the fun stuff. Interfaith ecumenical dialogue seeking unity with people who are from a different religion so from the outset we're not united um, because we have a different view of salvation and at the end well the real question is what kind of unity are you hoping to achieve at the end in what way Mm -hmm. can we be united at the end if we if we have different religions Um, so the biblical uh argument or or support for doing something like this would be like first peter 3 11 uh he seeks peace and he seeks it eagerly Mm. Um, would be if you feel that there is conflict of brewing in your country or that the people in your country are not united as citizens of the country because of religious differences 
that's what most people envision when they envision uh, ecumenical interfaith dialogue. And the second reason might be to be truthful. And this is one of the things that I, I support that I've seen a lot in my experience of studying Islam and living in Muslim countries. And then going back to Western countries is that false impressions, false ideas about religion abound, about Islam abound. And mm. that does harm people's ability to be a faithful witness to, to Christ. Mm. Paul wouldn't have been such a good witness at Mars Hill if he didn't know that the, that the uh, Greeks had these ideas of resurrection and these yeah. ideas of doing. And if yeah. he didn't know these, these, these poems to quote, he wouldn't have had that effective witness. Yeah. And so I like the idea, this is just my idea, but it makes me feel happy, that when Titus went to Jerusalem, Paul and Peter probably taught him Judaism and discipled him in Judaism a little bit. Mm. He's a Gentile, right? So he probably they probably walked him through rabbinic interpretation and stuff like that. Mm, that's interesting. Wow. So then we we see biblical precedent for learning about other religions. Absolutely. And there's a dialogue we mean uh, Joel both listened to. There was commenting on a dialogue between a, uh, uh, an interfaith dialogue between a Muslim and a Reformed Christian at a church where she was attacking, I shouldn't say attacking, but she was, she was criticizing. It sounded like she host. was attacking. <laughs> you can maybe put the link for people who want to hear that. She was, she was, she was criticizing um, this man for having this dialogue. And she was saying, if you're going to educate people in Islam, you should have a Christian expert in Islam, or you should have a former Muslim uh, so that people don't get the wrong idea about Islam. And the trouble I have with that is, is that the wrong idea about Islam is the idea about Islam that Muslims themselves don't have, because Islam is a belief. The right idea about Islam is what Muslims believe, because Islam is a belief. Hmm. So the right idea about Christianity is what Christians actually believe. Uh, so that, that, I think, getting a real, true, accurate picture of another religion with the acknowledgement from the outset that there is an essential truth claim difference between Christianity and this religion, and with the acknowledged purpose that the people listening are going to use this as a tool to proclaim the truth and the gospel to members of that religion, I think is a very good thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so if that's the point of your dialogue, is to get clarity and truth on what the other person believes, then go ahead. And the rule that I would say that guides it is pretty intuitive, be loving and be truthful. Mm -hmm. Be honest about what you believe. Be honest. Give them space to be honest what they believe and, and be loving. Some people I've read on the internet try and add the condition that you should try and agree with that person wherever you can. Hmm. You still there? Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. I'm just listening. Um, I don't know what your opinion on that. I'd like to hear it. I don't know that that's being truthful, to be honest. I don't yeah. think you can be truthful and try to agree with somebody, but... It's... it's it's difficult because it's super tempting. Like I think about my conversations yep. that I have uh, with Muslims, particularly uh, regarding Jesus's role in the eschaton, because mm -hmm. if you're not familiar, Jesus is in the Quran is said as returning on the last day in a judgment role. And uh, let me, let me clarify. That's not in the Quran. It's in the Hadith. That's in the, yeah. That's later, okay. later. Hadith sources say that. Fantastic. See, that's why it's even so helpful. Um, so, I mean, that's a beautiful place to, or at least I shouldn't say beautiful, a tempting place to agree because yes. 
like, yeah, amazing. We believe Jesus is going to come split the sky riding on a white horse and judge, separate the sheep from the goats. And um, I have to admit, I have in conversations agreed with Muslims on this point, um, but it's perhaps dangerous because they're seeing this judge returning without the knowledge of the cross and confession confession of faith. And it's it's no longer salvific for them. Um, I, I think well, that, the, that Jesus, when he comes back, breaks every cross in the world. He breaks them. So, no, um, yeah. That's, that's saying, part of the yeah, yeah. But I'm saying that, like, for us, Jesus' return is hopeful yes. um, because yes. we know we're going to be called up into the air with him. But um, I think that having that conversation and agreeing on Jesus's role in the eschaton without understanding atonement and salvation uh, through the right. completed work of Christ, you're actually omitting a very important truth. Very claim, important and that truth. If you yeah. agree there without clarifying who Jesus is, that's actually causing more harm than good. More harm than good, which is where I think the Acts 17 example is very useful because he uses that agreement as a springboard to the essential truth claim. Mm -hmm. So it's it's good to agree with Muslims on that and then use it as a springboard. So what gives Jesus the authority to judge? God is the only judge. God is the only righteous one. Why, why is Jesus therefore able to judge? How? And so always remember that what you agree with people should be a springboard to the essential truth claim. Unless, as I said, this is just a dialogue to clear the air and to make people understand what Islam believes with more clarity, in which case it's not going to take the same priority. Um, mm. But that's still not the same as trying to understand, I agree with somebody. Yeah. Right, it's still not the exact same. Um, uh, a good example might be that the Quran does say that Jesus is the word of God. Well, it, literally, it's a word of God. It's in the indefinite. And lots of um, Arabic Christian philosophers and theologians have made a lot of great gospel presentations based on this truth. But they've not agreed with it as the Quran says it. Mm. And so that's the point. Don't just agree with something for the sake of being in a state of agreement with somebody. Because that's really not being truthful. Mm -hmm. um, it might be missing out on an opportunity to actually springboard into a gospel presentation. Because what historically Arabic Christians have said is, your Quran, your Quran says this about Jesus. And the Muslim will say, yeah, he's a word of God, um, that God speaks and he was, that God spoke and he was, and he does the same for other prophets. And then they'll bring a rejoinder and say, but if you believe that, then and then they'll present a case for why Jesus is the eternal word of God, eternal with God himself, different from other, other people. Other, so he'll start with what they believe. Look, it's what your book says. Um, and then he'll let them explain what they mean by that. And then he'll respond with what he means by that and use, mm -hmm. use that Quranic claim as a springboard to what, what the Bible means when it says Jesus is hologos. Mm -hmm. So... And so um, don't try to agree with people, but do look for points of agreement because they're good springboards, but mm. don't try and agree with somebody. Now for the final one, are we good with that? Or does anyone yeah, else yeah. want to add a no, let's do it. This is the most iffy one. This is, there are political ecumenical councils, which 
try and seek the general unity of the society or the nation that you live in if you notice that unity to be waning or to be in jeopardy. Um, and yep. you can give lots of examples on both sides. There have been massacres and mosques. There have been terrorist attacks. Churches have been burnt down. Stuff like that has happened where unity amongst the religious groups in your society are in jeopardy. And from time to time, the civil magistrate might call upon you or call upon religious leaders to have a dialogue to try and bring about some peaceability. Yeah. And First th- Peter does tell us to do that. Yeah. So I think the, the most famous example of this is that uh, the Parliament of World Religions mm-hmm. in Chicago, that 1893. So you, you see leaders of all Christian denominations, um, Muslims, uh, Jews coming together and seeing where, where can we find unity for political purposes, political for, purposes for harmony yeah. within society. And do you think that you think you can find biblical precedent for that? Um, I can't find biblical precedent with that, I don't think. Um, in fact, whenever the apostles are dragged before civil magistrates, and the civil magistrate says something like, how come you're causing so much trouble? They say something like, um, we can't uh, help but speak about what we've seen and heard. Mm-hmm. But there is a biblical command to seek peaceability. And so if the situation were to really demand it, and that doesn't mean any old time, Right, if you live in a small town and there's no real conflict between the two religions, it might not be necessary. Like mm-hmm. it has to it has to really demand it. You have to be living in a situation where the conflicts are getting pretty heated, pretty intense. Yeah. Like Egypt is a good um, example. Like and Egypt they really is a good example, but not all the time. Not all the time. Even in Egypt, it's not all the time. Yeah. Like right yesterday in Cairo or a few days ago my girlfriend sent me this message that my heart leapt into my chest. She's Whoa. Like, Steven just got married. So he's getting, oh, give, yeah. give him some grace. Wife. Wife. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, so she said something like 40 people died in a church. And I was like, another explosion. You gotta be kidding me. It was an electrical fire. Um, mm. And so like, if there's not a problem, don't try and fix it because you might make it worse by trying to fix it. Yeah. If, if you're not actually fighting with the Muslims, don't have a conversation called why are our religions fighting so much? Because then you're going to put it in people's heads that they should be fighting when they, when, before they weren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but if you are in a situation where that's happening, um, then your concerns are going to be primarily political. So the kind of argumentation you're going to bring forward is going to be things like, kind of like what we just talked about, with what's the spiritual application of the Old Testament law. And you're gonna be looking at questions of, of why we should live peace, peacefully together. If I can reference mm. the dialogue that we listened to one more time and maybe it'll be in the comments section. Mm, yeah, I'll post it in there. So this there was a spiritual dialogue that took place a little while ago, almost 10 years ago now, about the spiritual truths of Christianity and the spiritual truths of Islam and was criticized because it wasn't talking nearly enough about political issues um, around Islam in America. And one of the ladies was accusing him of not addressing an idea that Muslims are trying to take over America. And if you're offended by that, I'm not saying that that's what's happening. That's just, that is what people say sometimes. And she was stressing that any conversation with, with Muslims has to address this political elephant in the room, that there is such a thing as jihad and there's such a thing as physical conflict and armed conflict in Islam. And there's an idea of Islam 
conquering or what I call a victory theology in Islam. And there is. There is a victory theology in Islam unequivocally. Um, mm -hmm. And so those types of political conversations can be useful and they will touch the truths that matter to political harmony. So an example would be if a Muslim wants to explain what is Islamic victory theology uh, look like in America or in Canada in the 22nd century or the 21st century. Oh man, I did the 2022, 20, 22nd century. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the 21st century, what, what does that look like? What is the, the victory that Islam will be victorious in the end? Is, is, is an important doctrine in Islam? It's real, it's there. What does it look like for us living today and he there, there could be a purpose in him explaining that to Christians so that Christians calm down and don't think that Muslims are declaring a jihad on them every time a mosque is built in their neighborhood mm -hmm. which is an important problem that does happen and there have been mosques vandalized and have been mosques attacked by people thinking that when a mosque is built in your neighborhood this is a jihad being declared on your neighborhood that's happened mm -hmm. and it continues to happen and so a political dialogue where you explain that side of things is very good. And then your role on the Christian side is going to say, now what is a Christ-like response to having a mosque in your neighborhood look like? Mm. Uh, that's not gonna tackle the spiritual truths of Islam and the fundamental reality, but it's not an evangelical dialogue, it's a political dialogue. Mm. And so I'm not encouraging Christians to get super political about everything. I am saying that if there's a, if there's a real need for you to say, okay, the concept is where our war is not with flesh and blood, but the principalities of darkness. So don't think you're need to be in a physical conflict with the Muslims in your neighborhood. If you have to say that, mm -hmm. say that. If you have to say that those people who say that Western civilization is being threatened by Islam, and so we need to respond. Um, and you want to, or your opinion is that whether true or false is not the mission of the church to preserve any civilization, be it Western or otherwise. Mm. then that, that would be the environment to say something like that. Yeah. Or to clarify the relationship between the Old Testament and the violence we read in the Old Testament and the New Testament and the eschatological violence in the New Testament <clears throat> that we do get in the book of Revelation, especially lots of eschatological violence. Mm -hmm. um, and to clarify that relationship to Christians today for the sake of public peace, that can be a good thing too. Um, yeah. But what is not a good thing is making fake religious doctrinal agreements expecting that to to change the socio-political reality yeah absolutely that's what that's what you got to avoid doing is is compromising on essential christian doctrines uh changing what you mean by the deity of christ changing what you mean by the death and resurrection of christ just for the sake of seeking political unity and an example of that just to make sure you guys know i'm not talking nonsense there was there have been lots of dialogues between Christians and postmodernists, where the postmodernists have always have said that your doctrine of hell is what's causing these conflicts. Mm. And if you just dropped it and just dropped believing that people who didn't believe in your religion were going to hell, we wouldn't have so many conflicts in the world. And in one example, uh, Dr. Michael Brown was debating a rabbi on the Unbelievable podcast, and that you can just YouTube if you want to. There's actually that clip is preserved for us of Michael Brown, who is a, who is a, a Jewish a messianic believer in Jesus, very brilliant scholar of the Hebrew Old Testament, presenting the, the truth of the Messiah to this rabbi. But this rabbi was a very liberal postmodern rabbi, didn't really believe in the truth of Judaism. And his responses were not what 
unfortunately Dr. Brown was expecting. And at one point the clip is preserved for you on YouTube and isolated where he says, why don't you just say that all religions are going to happen? Why can't you just say that? Mm. Um, because to an outsider, to a non-religious uh, person, all religious claims are arbitrary. No one has real evidence for why they believe, no real certainty what they believe. So why not say the thing that brings about the most peace and stability and sustainability in the life and the world that you're in? And that sort of mm -hmm. compromise has no place in a Christ-honoring interfaith dialogue. You should never compromise on an essential doctrine like that everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus, his deity, his death and his resurrection, it's not going to enter into eternal life. If you mm. compromise on that for the sake of peace in your time, you're trading the physical, temporal world for the eternal, spiritual, resurrected world. Mm. In oh. other words, you're not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. You're trying to add these things to you and then get to the kingdom of heaven and righteousness sometime later on when we get the time. Cool. Yes. Right? Isn't that the proper order? That we read about in scripture 100 that's the proper word so yes well by all means if you have conflict and you want to clarify and tell christians don't start problems with your muslim neighbors that's not christ-like and if you want to give a muslim an opportunity to explain to a christian why we're not here to declare religious war on you please do but uh keep christ at the center absolutely amen Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pethwell Project. If you like what you heard, feel free to give us a rating, or even better, share this with one of your friends. For more information, check out our website at pethwellproject.com or follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Pethwell Project.